is my brother-in-law, John Mark. Uh, he married my baby sister about 10 years ago. I performed the wedding. I was there, and uh, we've been close ever since. And then he and Rael, they love the outdoors as much as my wife Erin and I do. They've got a bunch of little kids running around as we do. And they also lead a church, a church in Asheville, North Carolina. So when we get together, we have a lot in common. We get to share and talk and, and, and put together stories and tell stories with each other, and we really enjoy that time. Many years ago, before they were officially a couple, uh, John Mark surprised my sister and surprised her when she came to visit him uh, with a boat ride. They were in Florida. He rented a boat, and he took her out in the boat on one of what became one of their first dates together, out in the water at sunset in the Tampa Bay. It was a beautiful night. The sunset was perfect, just as he had planned, and there he confessed his love for my sister, and they went from having a, uh, a relationship where they were friends to suddenly they were in a relationship there. It was a beautiful night, and as he confessed his love for her there, the western horizon was beautiful, the sky was gorgeous, everything was going according to plan. However, my brother-in-law is not known for his planning, actually. Uh, he he uh, grew up on the water, and he was at the time serving active duty in the Coast Guard, so he knows a lot about the water. He knows a lot about the currents. He also is an excellent boater. But he was so mesmerized, so heartstruck, so lovesick over my sister that all of that went out the window. He, he lost track of time. And when he turned the boat around, as darkness began to fall, he started heading back towards the east, and he realized that a storm had come up behind him, and the waves were beginning to get much, much higher. The little John boat that he rented was not exactly what you need to be out in the open waters on Tampa Bay and farther out into the water. As, as darkness began to close in, he realized that the rough seas were starting to beat the boat back and forth, back and forth, especially now in a storm after dark. And so the day that began as a casual friendship now was a romantic relationship after sunset was going to be a harrowing journey through uh, rough waters. They battled late into the night, exhausted. They finally returned home after hours and hours and hours on the water safely to shore. The story came to my mind this week because it happened, as I said, in Tampa Bay. As you know, this week uh, there was a hurricane, Hurricane Ian, that slammed into the state of Florida, specifically uh, in Tampa. That was one of the hardest areas hit. And unlike my sister's story, there was many, I believe the count is over 60, 65 people now, who did not make it home safe. So if you've got friends or family in that area, if you've got pictures or videos that you have seen and you want to send help, it's just a reminder to you that our church is affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. We have partners in that area responding right now. If you want to find out about that, sendrelief.org. It's a very easy website. You'll be able to see uh, what is happening there on the ground. You can give financially uh, to provide supplies. You can be part of the Baptist network of churches that are responding, teams from all over the United States, perhaps even a team from our state as well, headed that way as the tangible hands and feet of Jesus Christ to respond, to send relief when relief is needed. 
There's an old Irish blessing that you may have heard of. It says this, may the road rise to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. Have you heard this before? So why does that statement go that way? Well, because it's a lot easier when the wind is blowing in the same direction that you are trying to go. So I I haven't introduced myself. I've just kind of pushed myself along here. But my name is Pastor Milan. I'm glad that you're here. If you're watching online, I'm glad that you're here as well. We are in week number four in a sermon series in the book of Esther. As I was preparing this week and looking this week at this passage, but I was also, as many of you were, kind of watching and tracking this hurricane and seeing uh, how it might affect friends and family in other states and other parts of the country, I came across, as sometimes these things do, I came across a message that was preached by a pastor named Gary Anderson in Palo Alto, California, from a New Testament passage, specifically the Gospel of Mark. And it shaped for me, and it will shape for us where we are going today. And it's in the Gospel of Mark where he talked about the, the Sea of Galilee. And, and the story goes, as you remember it, this, this is happening where just after 5,000 people have been fed, where Jesus has fed 5,000 people with nothing but a few loaves of bread and a few fishes, he has this miraculous event, and they get in the boat and they start rowing across the Sea of Galilee. And these fishermen, these experienced fishermen who know the water, they know what's going on, find themselves out, find themselves out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and hours later, what appeared to be smooth sailing, everything was going fine, everything felt good, this miraculous event had just happened, they suddenly find themselves terrified in the middle of the night, in the darkness. May the road rise up to meet you, may the wind always be at your back. Why? Because it's always easiest when the wind is blowing in the same direction that you are trying to go. But here's the thing about the wind. The wind changes. And there are times when the wind is blowing in the direction that you are trying to go, and it's easy, and it's fun, and it goes well. And when the wind is blowing in that direction, it's very easy to forget that there is something propelling you along in that way. Whatever activity you choose, you can, you can go out running, you can go cycling, kayaking, you can go out walking the dog. If you are going and the wind is at your back, your steps are easy, movement is easy. If you're going for a walk in the evenings, if you're going rollerblading, if, do people go rollerblading anymore? I'm not sure. That may not be the best example. Skateboarding. If you're going out, if you're doing any of those types of things, even if you're on the ski slope, you can feel the wind at your back. And it's very enjoyable because that's the way that wind works. It propels you along. It's very easy not to realize that you have the wind at your back until you notice some things around you or you notice and you turn and you try to change directions and go into the wind. And the same is true of life. There are seasons that we go through that for one reason or another, it feels as though the wind is at your back. Things are going really well. Things are just clicking along. There's a lot more wins than there are losses. The Buffalo Bills are winning everything, and we feel good about it. Your kids are all getting A's. The promotions at work keep coming. The paycheck keeps going up. You're able to pay your mortgage. You're able to pay mortgage on a bigger house. The kids are doing well. They got into the good school that you wanted them to get in. Things are just cruising along. Does it ever seem to feel that way? The challenge of those seasons of life is to forget that there's a tailwind that is pushing you along. It's very easy to forget 
in a place like the place that we are in, here in Williamsville or in Clarence, where things are generally fairly easy for us. We are not afraid of crime. We are not afraid of what's going to happen to our jobs or our incomes. Very rarely do those things affect us as tangibly as maybe somewhere else that we might live. What happens when things are going relatively smoothly is that we begin to think about how my skills, my successes, my accolades, my hard work has gotten me all of these good things. But when we go through these seasons of life where we don't have the tailwind, where we are trying to either change direction or the wind is going to change direction, suddenly we come to the reality of the fact that we aren't as much in control as we think it is. And all of a sudden, we're going to come to a headwind. And there are seasons of life where you feel like you are pushing into the headwind every single day. When I asked you a minute, do you know seasons where everything is going well? There was probably a few of you who were like, yeah, I feel pretty good. But most of us are thinking, no, I'm in that other season. That other season where you are trying and trying and trying and sailing and sailing and sailing and you aren't going anywhere. It's those seasons in life that you feel like you're working twice as hard to get half as much. It's those seasons of life that feel like you can't do anything right and everything will still go wrong. And then you expect after a while that it's just going to go wrong no matter what you do. We all have those kinds of seasons of life. And making headway is painful because the wind is against us. March 2020 was one of those seasons for all of us for the whole world. A lot of us are still feeling like we're fighting against a headwind. I used to say it was 18 months ago, and I realized this week as I wrote that out in my notes, no, it's not 18 months ago anymore. It's not even 24 months ago. Now we're getting 30 months ago that we've been fighting the headwind. Some of you might be in a relationship right now that's exactly like this where every conversation, every moment, every part of this relationship feels like you're fighting a headwind. Some of you might be dealing with health or a sickness, that, that there are issues where you are painfully pushing into the headwind. That's not just a theoretical way to talk about it. No, you are dealing with pain every single day, every single step, every single time you get up from a chair. You are in pain, and pushing through that is a difficult thing. It's like you're fighting headwind after headwind after headwind. So the title, as you can see on the screen today of my message, is When the Struggle is Real. When the Struggle is Real. So the question I want to kind of put over top of the rest of my sermon here this morning is this. Why? Why? Why does the struggle have to be real? If God is a good God, like we talk about, if God is a good God who likes to give good gifts to His children, if His evidence is that there is goodness of God all around us, everywhere we look, if He is sovereign and He is for us, He is not against us, why does it still feel like so much of life is pressing against a headwind that is always a fight? Why do we still have to go through these hard things? Why do we still live with all of the garbage in all of the junk. Why? If God is for us, who can be against us? And yet at the same time, why do we sometimes feel like the whole world is against us? Why does it feel like the whole world and all of life is so painful and making headway against it is the most difficult thing we have to do and we have to get up and do it every single day? As we look at this Old Testament story, 
as we read about Esther, as we look at the life more specifically of Mordecai today, this has to be the way that they are feeling. This has to be the emotional state that they are in. For Mordecai specifically, chapter 2, we were there last week, chapter 2, things are going beautifully. His plan for how his adopted daughter, Esther, was going to be protected, his plan worked exactly how he drew it up. She was out of harm's way, and in turn, so was he. He was also out of harm's way. She, as she won, as she's winning this uh, beauty pageant, as corrupt as it may be, she had come out on top. She had come out victorious, the winner. She was now made to be the queen in all of the land. And he, Mordecai, on his own merit and his own intelligence and his own strategic thinking, had become an advisor to the king. He now sits at the city gate serving and ruling over the land. Last week we read about how he had foiled this assassination plan upon the king, this attempt to take the throne away from the king. Mordecai is good at his job. He's doing all the right things. Esther is in a good place. Life is good, and for all intents and purposes, the wind is at their back, and they are cruising. This was smooth sailing. And then all of a sudden, chapter 3 happens. Chapter 3, verse 1 happens specifically, and the winds change direction, it seems. Every step in chapter 3 is difficult and labored and painful. And by the end of the chapter, all of Susa is a complete and total chaos. The winds have changed. The struggle is real. Chapter 3 didn't begin the way that we expected it to. We are reminded as we look at the beginning of this chapter of the injustice that happens in our fallen world. Even though Mordecai has saved the king's life, the king ends up promoting the other guy, the other man named Haman in verse 1, not Mordecai. That turns out to be a very bad thing for Mordecai and, of course, the Jews as a whole, the nation as a whole, as we will soon see. When Jews gather together, I was studying this week of how Jews gather together and they often read this passage, even today as part of the celebration of Purim. They bring with them noisemakers and and things to clang and bang together and boo and hiss when the name Haman comes up in the passage. Every time the name comes up, they don't even want it to be heard because he is the enemy of the Jews. In verses 2 through 4, we see Mordecai refusing to acknowledge Haman and respect him. And now that Haman is in this new elevated position, Mordecai doesn't want anything to do with it. He does not want to bow down to him. And the other servants of the king, they keep badgering him, telling him, asking him to bow. What is the deal? What's going on? Mordecai refuses, only then revealing it's because he is a Jew. Verses 5 and 6, Haman gets wind of this and he loses his mind. The idea that one person, particularly this one person, everyone in the kingdom could bow down to him, but if this one person was not willing to bow down to him, he was going to exact his revenge at him and everyone with him. In the end, he commits to killing all of those in the, and within a Jewish heritage. Verse 7, we see this odd thing with Haman. We see his servants, they are casting pur or casting lots. That's the type of dice that they're, they're rolling. They're seeking guidance from uh, these pagan gods as to how their lives would go. The best time, how, uh, how they could lead this strange nation. And how they could actually lead, in his case, he's going to lead this nation by leading them towards a genocide. And we see this tragedy of idolatry here. 
They do this in the first month. The dice rolls and rolls and rolls to the twelfth month, and that is the time that this evil deed is decided upon. In verses 8 through 11, we see Haman take his plan to the king. He bends and twists the truth. He doesn't let him know all of the information. Haman is, is sly the way that he is talking about this, making the Jews seem more dangerous than they really are, more defiant than they are really being. They don't deserve to live, O king. They're not good for society, O king. They don't want to pay homage to you, O king. And we see the cruelty and the prejudice here. And then Haman offers money. He offers a lot of money. We have to be careful when we're looking at passages like this. And as we've been moving our way through the book of Esther, you need to be reminded, I need to be reminded, that there is very little difference between me or you and Xerxes. The power that corrupts all humans on this planet, meaning that our desire for more power, our desire for more money, and particularly for men, the desire for more sex or more control is real. And throughout time and throughout history, we see many, many leaders get pulled into this trap. And you must realize, were it not for the grace of God, that every single person in this room would be lured in to the same things. If we had it in our own right, in our own selfish desires, we're allowed to get exactly what we want. We were given everything that we could desire. Every one of us, particularly men, would love to have a beauty pageant to find the perfect woman for you. Don't pretend that's not the case. This is the sin nature that is in each and every one of us, if it not were for the grace of God. He appeals to Xerxes for the financial benefits here. He says you'll pay 10000 something like $220 million U.S. dollars. Scholars believe that this was at least 60 to 70% of the national budget that Xerxes was working with that he was going to wipe away, most likely by taking the money, taking all of the, the, the spoils of the Jews. Haman came by this idea at no cost to Xerxes. All he has to do is say yes, and all of it will go away. And he is in trouble. Xerxes is in trouble. The king has financial problems as it is, so the timing is right and so what does he do? He takes his signet ring and he puts his stamp of approval on it. gives him authority to act. And the evil Haman runs out of the room, much like we see Judas run out of the room in the New Testament because his plan is going to work and he's going to exact his revenge. He's going to make sure that it works. And the king doesn't realize that he has just written the death sentence for his brand new queen. In verses 12 through 15, the decree hits the public press. The word gets out. The death sentence is going to be distributed. A day is set on the calendar. The Jews will be plundered, and then they will be executed. Good Persians, who, who have always said that they wanted to work alongside all different nations and all different people, that they were going to allow them to excel next to each other, suddenly have changed their mind because it's profitable for them to do so. And now they are going to turn on them. And it's happening all across the empire. And verse 15 closes with the king and Haman sitting down for a drink while the empire and the city, complete chaos, breaks out outside. What we see here is the inevitability of corruption in a fallen world. As we discussed 
a couple weeks ago. Because of sin, the world is intrinsically broken, meaning that it's always going to be broken. It always remains broken, and it's helpless and it's hopeless outside the God of God's miraculous work to seek and save the lost. Imagine how you and I would feel as the news begins to circulate through the city, through the land. How would you feel? How would they feel as God's people, the Jews? Who could they possibly lean on? What is it they are going to do? They need something. They need help. And they need it quick because the winds have changed. The wind is no longer at their back and the struggle is real. The wind was at their back one day as they finished one day. And when the next day closes, they are in the midst of an epic struggle that is going on for the survival of an entire people group. On one day, Mordecai is serving and fighting for the king. Next to him, he's at the king's side. And just like that, the next day, he is serving and fighting against the king who is trying to commit genocide. This is the struggle. And do not think for a moment that it is a coincidence. Do not think for a moment that it is an accident, because I believe that God is trying to show us and show His readers something of what it means to follow God, and that's what I want us to see this morning as we look. I know this has been a long introduction, if you will, but we're going to get to our points pretty quickly. Here's the first takeaway I want us to see. When the struggle is real, God sends us into the struggle. God sends us into the struggle. How's that for a takeaway? When the struggle is real, God sends us into it. Check this out. This goes back into last week's text. Chapter 2, verse 21. In those days, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Big, thin, and terrorist, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry, and they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, which is King Xerxes. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. This came to the knowledge of Mordecai. Underline that, mark it, circle it. He did not go looking for this at all. This came to his knowledge. It fell into his lap because God was sending him into the struggle. Mordecai was minding his own business. Mordecai was doing his job. Then Mordecai learns of this plot. God is sending him in. Now think about this. Remember what we saw last week. So Xerxes, he has basically trafficked hundreds, if not thousands of women here into the kingdom, brought them into slavery, including Mordecai's adopted daughter, Esther. And she happens to win the competition, and it it does improve her life, but at the same time, she's essentially made into this plaything that the king can bring out any time that he wants for his own pleasure. So if you're Mordecai and you learn about this plot, how do you feel about this king? Mordecai is clearly trying, at least to this point, to play it safe, to keep his head under the radar, to keep from getting hurt, but it's pretty likely that he's not a fan of the king. He's got lots and lots and lots of reasons, just like every one of the other Jews as well, to despise this man. They have been pulled out of their homeland. They're in a foreign nation. But Mordecai is not trying to fight. He's minding his own business. Mordecai is doing his job. He learns of the plot. How? I believe that God sends him into the struggle. 
And when he hears of the plot, he could simply say, ah, finally the king's going to get his due. Finally, someone is going to come after him. One of his victims is finally going to be able to do something about it. But he doesn't. Mordecai continues to fulfill his job. Mordecai continues to be obedient to God while he works there. And he is most likely directly responsible for protecting the king's life. Is there anything for us to learn here? As you look at this passage, God is sending Mordecai into the struggle. When the struggle is real, God sends you and me, sends us into the struggle. The wind has turned. The tides have changed. And God is allowing, if not causing it, to happen. So we engage in the struggle. In the tension, we, we draw it out. But don't take this out because you'd be pulling it out of context. So do not take this out of context. Notice that you never triumph over evil by multiplying evil. We don't win, uh, we don't win by going and fighting in, in the same ways that they are fighting. You don't see Mordecai. You don't see him create his own assassination plot, do you? In our society, is there are evil rulers in our government, evil officers, evil, evil if you want to call them senators or state representatives or national representatives, our governors, our judges. Are we supposed to create an assassination plot to be able to wipe them out? No! As evil as they may be. Goodness, no. No, that's not what God would have for His people. Paul didn't tell the first century church that they needed to go out and fight back and eliminate and assassinate Nero. The church doesn't win like that. We win by obeying our Lord and trusting that He will win the day. There's a reason behind this. There's a reason for why this is happening. God has a reason. God has a purpose for everything that happens under heaven. We must keep that in mind. And so we must remember that we have no idea what the Lord intends to do. But we do know that He has taught us, and we believe He has taught us, to obey. Your simple obedience might be part of what God is using to hinge something that your whole life will turn on, or even a whole nation. If we look at obedience, we looked at this last week as well, but Abraham... And his simple obedience to God, his call to leave the land, to take everyone and go to a place where God would show him. He does this in Genesis chapter 12. What's the result? Now the nation of Israel exists because Abraham was obedient to God. In a similar fashion, Joseph, because he was obedient to God. His obedient act was to flee from Potiphar's wife. He's going to be obedient to God no matter what. He ends up leading millions of people through a, 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 a nationwide famine and being able to hold them from starvation and dying there. And then over time, God incubates His people in Egypt for 400 years. And we see the book of Exodus begin as now they move away. The reality is this. You don't know what God is doing. We must listen to Him. Believe that He has allowed this struggle to happen. Cultivate in yourself and in ourselves obedience and trust Him for the results. Because when the struggle is real, we must remember that God has actually sent us into the struggle. That's the first takeaway. Here's the second. When the struggle is real, remember God sees us in the struggle. When the struggle is real, remember God sees us in the struggle. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. 
elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. So Mordecai, he's the one who deserves this promotion, but it was given to Haman. When the struggle is real, God sees us in the struggle. Mordecai deserves this promotion, and he may have felt alone, he may have felt disregarded, he may have felt unnoticed and unseen, and even more so, if, as the chapter goes on, as, as Haman exacts his revenge against Mordecai, he feels like he's all alone, but God sees us in the struggle. How does God see Mordecai? Well, sometimes in Scripture, and this is a perfect example of it, we get to be detectives. We get to look at Scripture and see, why is there all this detail in chapter 3? Why is it so long? Chapter 3, verse 1, we get one word that gives us something to work on, detective work-wise. It's a great example of that one word is that this man is an Agagite. He's an Agagite. This means that he is a descendant of a man named Agag. If you don't know, and I probably wouldn't have known without having to really study it and think through it this week, we'll find Agog in the Scriptures in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. We have an account how King Saul, the first king of Israel, is supposed to go to war. He's supposed to go and fight the Amalekites. And who is their king but King Agog? He's supposed to go on this expedition against the Amalekites. And if you remember what happened, in his greed, as he wins the battle, as he wins the day, Saul is supposed to wipe out the enemy. He's supposed to bring all of the first fruits of their spoils before the Lord and be able to give sacrifices to the wonderful things that God has done. But he doesn't. He brings the last fruits. He brings the old and weak sheep, and he sacrifices them. He keeps them. And as, as Samuel, the prophet Samuel, is talking to this first king of Saul, he says, I can hear the sheep bleeding in the background. I can hear the animals. You did not obey. And in turn, King Saul also, for political reasons, decides to leave the king unscathed. King Agag. He spares his life. And in doing so, King Saul was removed from the throne of Israel. In doing so, David becomes king over Israel. That's where we've heard of Agog before. But that's not all. That's not all. If we trace further back, if we look further back, we discover that Elimelech was the, the enemy of Israel and they came through the wilderness out of, out of Egypt into Canaan. In Exodus chapter 17, there's this battle with the people of Elimelech. And, and as, as we read about the battle down in the valley, Joshua is fighting the battle in the valley. And Moses is up on the mountainside watching the battle as it is happening. As he watches there out of, out of a stance of humility before the, before the Lord and, and humbling himself as, in, as, as far as the nation of Israel would be humbled before the Lord. He had his arms outstretched to God. God, help us in this battle. And as Joshua fights down in the valley, as he fights there against the enemy, he is victorious as long as Moses holds his hands in the air and content, continues to keep himself in a position of humility before a holy God. And as the day goes on and he gets tired and, and, and the battle begins to wane, his arms begin to fall down. And as his arms come down, the battle starts to go in the other direction down in the valley. And if you remember, his companions... Aaron and her hold up his arms as he watches the battle to continue to hold him and keep him in a state of humility before a holy God. And Joshua wins the battle there in the valley. But they do not wipe out 
they do not eliminate the enemy in its entirety. That's the way that sin works sometimes. That's the way disobedience works. Oftentimes we think, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really affect us in the long run if we don't clean up everything. But sin is a pollutant. And it always seeks to destroy. We are told of the enemy that he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. And here we see this happening in the book of Esther, personified in the person of Haman, as the enemy tries to wipe out and erase the Israelites from the face of the earth, remove them from existence. And yet the Lord already knows. He already sees this. This is a struggle of cosmic proportions. God is not caught off guard. He is not caught unawares. God sees the struggle. God knows what is happening here. When the struggle is real, remember God sends us into the struggle. Remember also that God knows and God sees us in the middle of the struggle, which leads us to our third takeaway. When the struggle is real, God saves us from the struggle. This isn't true at all, actually. This isn't true at all. The fact is, it's actually inconsistent with Scripture. But it's what we want to write in here. That when the struggle is real, God keeps us from the struggle. And we we want to twist and turn Scripture to avoid the fact that we're going to have to go through suffering if we're followers of God. That if we have made God first in our life, then nothing bad will ever happen to us. And when it does, all of our theology is thrown out the window. We say, God, why are you doing this to me? It's because we want to write this in, that God saves us from the struggle. But that is not what Scripture teaches. It simply isn't true. It isn't true here. In the New Testament, it's not true for the disciples as they are crossing the Sea of Galilee. They are terrified, and God does not save them from their terror in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. When the struggle is real, God sees us there. When the struggle is real, God does not necessarily save us from our troubles. In fact, he tells his followers just the opposite. Prepare yourself, Jesus tells us in the New Testament. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, he says, for I have overcome the world. And that's actually what the third takeaway is for us. God sends us into the trouble. God sees us in the trouble. When the struggle is real, God shows himself in the struggle. That's actually what happens. Look at this, verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell in the twelfth month, in the month of Adar. Again, we've got some investigative work to do here. God shows himself in this struggle. I got some great investigative work that was done by an author named Ray Stedman. Many of you have heard of him before. He pointed out what is actually happening here. So this casting of lots is determined to see these these associates that work with the king, these assistants to the king. It was part of pagan culture often that they would see this, is that they actually, they all uh, roll the dice to see who gets to be king for a day. That's what's happening here. Uh, Who gets the option to, to make rules, make commands for one day. One day only, you get to be the king. This was a common practice in those type of kingdoms. It appears here, actually, as you were looking through this, if you kind of read through it and, and pay attention to what's happening, that Haman is actually the unluckiest 
of all of the people who are rolling the dice here. Because on the day when they all roll the dice, on fantasy draft day, he got the last pick in the draft. He's 12 months away before he actually gets to do anything. Where everyone else, that means every single month, someone else got to go. But here's the amazing thing. Look at the day that he picked. In the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the lot was cast and the present payment to select a day in the month. And it fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. God shows himself in the struggle. The date that he picks, the date that he is the last pick in the draft to pick, is actually the eve of the Passover. The eve of the Passover. The day that he thinks that he has picked to intend to exact a genocide on God's people. That's the day that has been commemorated by God's people about how he had moved supernaturally to protect his people and pull them out of slavery there in Egypt. When the struggle is real, God shows himself in the struggle. We've talked about this already in this book. God's name is never mentioned in the book. King Xerxes' name is mentioned over a hundred times in this book, and God's name is not mentioned once. And yet, when we look at this, in a pagan culture, in a pagan environment, God demonstrates for him, for all who are listening, for Mordecai, for anyone who's paying attention, he is showing himself in the midst of the struggle. So let's make our final turn here. The band will come forward and we'll close in just a moment together. There's this other nation, a different nation, it's Persia, it's not Egypt. It's another nation, it's a different ruler, it's Xerxes, it's not Pharaoh, but it's the same thing. It's, the, it's, it's this one who worships all these other gods and wants to be worshipped like a god, ruling over God's people and abusing God's people and holding them down in slavery. And the problem is that God's people are in exile in both accounts away from their homes and away from where they believe that they belong. But it's because of their own sin and because discipline is holy and righteous the way that God has done that. And so they need to deal with the sin and they can be delivered from slavery, their bondage and their exile. And so this decree is given that death will be coming to every home with one exception. Passover is all about homes that acknowledge their sin and repent of it. That they sacrifice, they take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost. That they are sacrificed, acknowledging their sin. Sometimes faith is an inward conviction, and sometimes it requires some outward action. We know what you believe because of how you behave. And they take, based on God's command there in Exodus 12, a lamb without sin, a lamb without spot or blemish, showing and proving and and demonstrating and personifying sinlessness. They confess their own sin is what their responsibility is to do through reckoning so that their sins would be placed on this animal and now it would become a substitute for their sins and the sins of that home. They said, gather the family around. Make sure that everybody knows the sins that are in our home. We're going to confess our sins. We're going to mark the doorposts so that we know, so that everybody knows that if it weren't for God, we are a sinful people. And the animal dies and the blood is shed because the wages for sin is death. And this animal dies as a substitute for that. And then as a final demonstration of the faith, as they mark the doorpost and they mark their home, they show outward, they show publicly what their faith looks like. 
that they worship the God of the Scriptures, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, and that we, in a similar fashion, we can also say that we deserve death, we deserve hell, we deserve the wrath of God, and there is a substitute for you and for me who shed its blood, paid its life without spot, without blemish for you and for me. That night as death, the angel of death, comes across the nation there in Egypt, it brings death to the firstborn son in every home except for the exception, those homes who are literally covered with the blood of the Lamb. So this decree from Haman, he comes on the eve of Passover. He's not the first one to try to destroy God's people. And God delivered them from Egypt, and he won't be the last one to try to destroy God's people. And he will deliver them from Persia many years later. But when we look back at the story of Esther, when Israel looks back at the story of Esther, it's all pointing ahead. It's all pointing to the person of Jesus. The Bible is all about one person, one hero, one story. His name is Jesus Christ. Like Mordecai and Esther, as they are working together as cousins, we see in the beginning of the New Testament Jesus and his cousin John the Baptist. When John the baptizer sees his cousin Jesus coming, he says this, and this is the truth. He says, Jesus is the king. He said he'll be seated on his throne. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. This is the fulfillment of Passover. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul says, Christ is our Passover lamb, the lamb that has been slain. Jesus is our Passover and what happens when Jesus comes, our great king, not the king Xerxes who's put himself on the throne. No, the great king with a greater power and a greater kingdom, the kingdom of God. That's what we keep in mind. That's what we hold on to. That's where our hope is today. The struggle is real. Remember that God is sending us into the struggle the struggle is real. Know this. God sees us there in the struggle. But know this above all else, that God will show Himself and He will get the glory through the struggle. Because see, this is the way that sin works. This is the way that Haman works when he is talking to the king. He is distracting. He is trying to pull away the focus, pull away the attention. And it's the oldest trick in the book. It's the same thing that the serpent does in the Garden of Eden. To distract, to pull away. He says, look over here, look over here. I've got something to show you. For Xerxes, it's a lot of money. He says, look over here. I want you to see this. And then sin works in a similar way. It starts to put doubt into the equation. He asked Xerxes, he said, there's this people. There's this people group. They're in your land and they don't, they set themselves apart. They, they pull themselves away and they don't want to behave like the rest of your kingdom. Don't you think that they might be up to something? In a similar fashion, in the Garden of Eden, we see the serpent do the same thing. There's this tree with the knowledge of good and evil, and God doesn't want you to have it. Don't you think he's up to something? He's trying to keep you from something and establishes doubt. But here's the way that sin also works. Irrevocable action happens. See, Haman is able to trick King Xerxes into making this command, this decree, this unchangeable, un unbreakable command, supposedly. And that's the way sin works in our lives is when we, are, we find ourselves in sin. We find that we've been distracted. We find that we've doubted God. And, not, and then we do something that seems unchangeable. It seems like it cannot be cleaned up. It's broken beyond repair. 
This is where we need a Savior. Because outside of Jesus Christ, that's absolutely true. But He sees us, and He shows Himself in the struggle. This morning, we do have a time of communion here. What happens with Jesus as He gathers His disciples around? Even at the table, as we know, Judas sits at the table. Struggle will be right on top of them in moments, in hours. And Jesus sits there, knowing that that will happen, knowing that God will get the glory because of it. The struggle is real. But remember, God will always show Himself in the struggle. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul teaches us what communion is about. If you are here this morning and you don't understand what, what has happened at the cross when Jesus has given Himself that, that lamb that was slain for your sins and for mine, please just maybe watch this morning. Hold back this morning. Because if you're participating in communion, you are knowing and understanding this do in remembrance of me, that Christ has changed, transformed, made you whole in a way that you could never have done on your own. That before that moment, you were irrevocably broken. But if you are here as a fellow believer in Christ, we need to be reminded of the blood that was shed. The blood that was shed does not save us from pain, does not save us from suffering, does not save us from struggle. In fact, we are told we will always be in the middle of that. There's a cosmic struggle going on in us and around us. No. He will get the glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says this, For I see from the Lord I also pass on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night He was betrayed, He took bread. This morning, as remembrance of what God has done for you, you can open up that top. There's a wafer there on the top. We break it together to be reminded of what Christ has done for you and for me. This is my body, he says, that was broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. The next verse reads, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us drink together. Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you. We come here in this communion table, Lord, we come. We share a meal together. It's a tiny, tiny meal, but it's a remembrance, Lord, of what you have done for us. Lord, we are reminded of your tremendous work on the cross. Because as we look at the story of Esther, as we look at the life of Mordecai, it seems like there is no chance, no hope, no way that they survive this. And that evil has won. And yet, you are fully engaged. You are fully involved. Lord, in our lives, it may seem like the world has fallen apart. It's broken. There's nothing that we can do. There's no way that we can help, and we can't. Outside of obedience to you, Lord, there is absolutely nothing that we have. We also believe there's nothing better than you. 
So, Lord, as we close this morning, if there's anyone here who has never given their lives over to you and understanding, Lord, that you have offered this gift, the wages of sin is death, just like Mordecai, Esther, anyone else there, they had this declaration that they would die unless you did something. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who needs to reach out and ask you, Lord, I need that gift of eternal life. Will you change my heart and my life? Will you change it today? I admit that I'm a sinner. The Bible says that I'm a sinner. The Bible says that I cannot save myself. I believe it. The Bible says if I confess my sins before you, Lord, if I, if I announce to the world my sins and ask that the blood of the Lamb would cover my sins, you say that that is enough. I believe it. Lord, if there be anyone here this morning, I pray that they would pray that here, prayer in this moment, in this place, right here, right now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.